Today we are talking to Ellie Fatsman uh, about her latest novel, Either Or, a sequel to The Idiot. Ellie Fatsman's first novel, The Idiot, was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in the UK. She is also the author of The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them, which was a finalist for a National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. She has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010 and holds a PhD in Comparative Literature from Stanford University. Celine is the luckiest person in her family, the only one who was born in America and got to go to Harvard. Now it's sophomore year, 1996, and Celine knows she has to make it count. The first order of business to figure out the meaning of everything that happened over the summer. Why did Celine's elusive crush Ivan find her that job in the Hungarian countryside? What was up with all those other people in the Hungarian countryside? Why is Ivan's weird ex-girlfriend now trying to get in touch with Celine? On the plus side, it feels like the plot of an exciting novel, on the other hand, why do so many novels have crazy abandoned women in them? How does one live a life as interesting as a novel, a life worthy of becoming a novel without becoming a crazy abandoned woman oneself? Guided by her literature syllabus and by her more worldly and confident peers, Celine reaches certain conclusions about the universal importance of parties, alcohol, and sex, and resolves to execute them in practice, no matter what the cost. Next on the list, international travel. Unfolding with the propulsive logic and intensity of youth, Either Or is a landmark novel. Hilarious, revelatory, and unforgettable, its gripping narrative will confront you with searching questions that persist long after the last page. Hi, Alif. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. I'm so happy to join you. Um, so this is, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, I'll just get into it. You, you, most days, how smart do you feel like you are? Because I think the key word here is feel, not think, um, because Celine, in all her youthful naivete, spends these two novels trying desperately to intellectualize her feelings, uh, treating her feelings as those they are uh, as though as though they are an affront to her intelligence. So, um, you know, with that in mind, I guess I was wondering, most days, how smart do you feel like you are? What an interesting question. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's me and then there's Celine, and that's already a little bit different. Um, I guess when I was, um, Celine is very much based on myself in my um, late teens, early 20s, on how I remember being. And I do remember the question of being smart and whether I was smart and how smart I was, was an enormous source of concern to me. Um, in general, I was I was really scared of, of failure, and I thought that there was, like, I don't know, that everything was a test. Like, the book is called Either Or, and I think the big Either Or is, like, either you can, you can succeed or you can fail. And I, I don't really view life that way anymore now. Um, part of it is just the luxury of not being so, like, scared, feeling like more secure. Um, but I also think that the idea of being smart and who's smart and who isn't smart, it's, it's, le it's less and less meaningful to me now. I, I almost feel like, I feel like talent is not as much a real thing as I, I used to think. I used to think that 
I had to show I was a writer of talent or I had to be a writer of talent and I would worry about how much talent I had. Um, now I just think it's about, um, I kind of think more in terms of trauma actually, which is a, a kind of thinking that I would have really resisted when I was Sidon's age, but I almost feel like it's dependent on how much trauma you have and how much you can metabolize it that determines how present you can be to reality and how much you can kind of take in and process and how much space you have to like listen and actually understand things. And that, that space is what we measure and think of as being smart. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like I'm getting better at that. So in that sense, I guess I feel like I'm getting smarter, but in another sense, it feels important to me that like, cause writing this book was in a way about, um, writing a book about a time in my life when I felt, when I feel like a lot of the things that I decided to do at that time are things that I no longer think were a good idea. So I have to kind of fight against the idea of like, oh, I was stupid then and now I'm smart because in a lot of ways I, I was the same person. And like a big project of the book was making all of the decisions that Sidon makes, some of which I would now, I mean, I guess as a shorthand, I would say that they're like, bad decisions. And in that sense, they could be called stupid decisions, although that's it's not a good word. But I, I was trying to show the, how they were justified from her point of view. I'm so pleased with that answer. It's interesting too, right? It speaks to, um, again, the, the words here, youthful naivete, especially in our current culture, we talk about uh, people of certain age groups um, and a sort of condescending is in the right tone, but definitely in a, we look, we're looking down on them. You know, I'm thinking about like Me Too movements and sexual relationships and the idea that a 20 year old, you know, participating in sexual activity with a 40 year old um, <clears throat> is coming from a more naive and less educated perspective. Um, you know, maybe that is in itself a, a unique conversation, but do you, it's, it sounds to me like you're saying even the stupid decisions you make are decisions you made for a reason and you're giving a little bit more onus to, to the youth in that way. I guess so. Yeah. But already in the way that you frame the question, I, I sense some, I, I don't think of it quite in terms of like onus and personal responsibility. And does that mean that it's your fault? Um, I, I definitely like in the case of like 20 year old women and 40 year old men. Yeah. I think it's important I don't know. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about the Monica Lewinsky story and how it was, as I was in college when that happened, I, I remember it. Um, and I remember that it was like the feminist point of view was like, no, of course she knows what her desires are and she knows she's able to act on them. And uh, I mean, that's true, but it's also true that there was such a ginormous power differential that, um, that was in part from age and from a lot of other things. And I think age does bring that power differential. And in that sense, um, but, but in general, I guess it's not about like, um, can younger people or should younger people be like held responsible or like held responsible for the, the, the things that they do. And more, um, I'm trying to think how to put this, like, I guess it's about treating everyone, thinking of everyone as a person and realizing that, um, I mean, this is an idea that I got obsessed with over the past few years is that we don't think of children as people exactly. And we don't think of our childhood selves as people the way we are now. Like if we think about um, 
This is an idea that I got a lot from reading Alice Miller, that she says that when we think about our childhood selves, we have this conditioning to identify with the parents. So we're like, oh, like I was really spoiled. Like I, we're, we're humiliated by our own powerlessness. And so we like distance ourselves from that to like, so I, I guess I think it's really important to think of each person at each like being as an actual person who's making um, decisions based on what knowledge they have and what options they think are available to them, which are of course, hugely constrained by age and, and all kinds of things. But yeah, I think that's kind of what you were saying too. Um, I think so, yes. Um, <laughs> in The Idiot, at one point, Celine muses over why an email from Yvonne stimulates her as much, if not more so than a text from uh, Balzac does. Um, is she over-intellectualizing the, a crush or is she being intellectually challenged by a crush? Um, I mean, I guess... My question for that would be um, over-intellectualized means like intellectualizing too much, like too much by what standard? Um, I guess I don't really feel, I mean, this is something with my first book, The Possessed, um, I was trying to do. I don't feel that like personal, the personal things that happen to me in my life are that separate from or that qualitatively different from the books that I read. I don't feel like the kind of thinking that goes into reading a not like maybe, maybe some kinds of reading it's different, but I think that um, reading a novel for me uses the same kind of skill, like processing a novel is the skills are really similar to processing actual life. And I think it's very natural that, especially since reading a novel takes a very long time, you know, like you're reading it and then you put it down and you have an interaction and then you pick it up again. Like those things kind of come together and they inform each other. And, um, and I guess at that particular age, I mean, those, maybe Sidon does like, she, she puts more meaning into those emails from Yvonne than was necessarily there. But um, I, I guess that could be seen as a kind of over-intellectualizing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she kind of over-intellectualizes everything in the book. Her, her every experience is well, something she's trying she, to, I mean, she, she's trying to solve everything. She thinks everything is a problem and that it has some kind of answer. And if she thinks about it long enough, she's going to come up with it. In that sense, yeah, you could say it's over-intellectualizing. I mean, I'm really into like mindfulness meditation now. And a big part of it is like learning to like not to not think, but to just view your thoughts as like thoughts and whatever goes on in your thoughts is not going to, there's no kind of thinking that's going to like resolve that. You just have to like sort of let the thinking be. And I think that's a skill that Selen does not have at all. And if she had it, she would be a lot happier and more comfortable probably. <laughs> uh, so would my teenage self probably. <laughs> um, in The Idiot, Yvonne advises Celine to make friends. And towards the end of the book, she comes to a realization about this advice. Um, he had been telling me something important about the world, about the way to live, about how the fateful character in your life wasn't the one who buried you, but the one who led you out to more people. Did you always intend to write a sequel when initially working on The Idiot? And if you did, did you always know you were going to lead Celine out to more people? You know, I I wrote the first draft of The Idiot when I was in my early 20s, and it was so closely based on my own experience. Um, 
but it was like, I wasn't that far from that experience at the time that I was writing it. So I guess I wasn't really thinking in terms of a sequel. Um, by the time I edited the idiot for publication, I was in my thirties and, um, in my, my mid to late thirties. And I, I was very conscious of that being an earlier period in my life. And I had actually been trying to write another novel about, um, a person very much like myself who was maybe going to be called Sidin in her thirties. That was what I was trying to do at the time. And I had various problems writing that mostly because it was too close to what I was living. And I found that I was able to actually go back in time and um, edit the idiot draft. So in a way the idiot, when it came out was already sort of a prequel. I did not have a plan to write her sophomore year, like an immediate sequel like that until I started doing the promotion for the idiot and, um, and having conversations like this one with, with, you know, really smart readers and, and, um, and, and thinking back about the book and thinking about it in the context of my own life and also in the kind of um, cultural revisiting of the 90s that was going on because of Me Too and, and, and actually I think the election of Trump brought, which had, that happened at the same time that the idiot came out, I think that had a big part, um, a, played a big role in it. Um, and I, I was doing that kind of thinking and, um, and I, I realized that there were certain things in the idiot that I hadn't really made clear even to myself, let alone to other people. And that I had to do a sequel that would show that would go back to that period of time and make those things more clear. Including bringing Celine more to other people. I guess so, because one of the things that, I mean, one of the things that was really important to me was um, the way in which, I think the idiot, I didn't think of it as a political book at the time. And then I, I started to realize that it was a political book. It was about how someone was depoliticized and it became important to me to make that political content clear. And politics is all about our relationships with other people and the power structures that we get into. And I think, um, I haven't really thought about I guess the, the end of the idiot is more in the world of other people when she goes to Hungary. I haven't really thought about whether either or is like, she's more in the world of other people than in the idiot. I guess she is. I guess she's like, yeah, she's, she's more. She, connected. She, she does travel again towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. And meets strangers. Um, I'm wondering what does setting the start of either or at the beginning of the academic year in 1996 contribute to the story? You've sort of alluded to it already. It's your, it's your experience. It it was the time in which you were having these experiences, but I mean, I guess, I guess I've answered that question, but I was wondering what was so appealing about setting that specific period for Celine's story. Was it merely an autobiographical pull or, or, or did it seem like integral to the, to the plot in a way? Well, you know, I was, One of the conversations that I had a lot with people who read The Idiot um, was, um, so The Idiot is about Sidon's relationship with her, her crush on this guy, Ivan, and a number of readers were very confused or agitated or even angry that um, Sidon and Ivan don't have sex at the end of the book. And that was a... um, that was a reading that I found very surprising. Um, 
because I, and people ask me, you know, why did you, why did you decide to not consummate the relationship? And the answer is it wasn't a decision at all because it was based on my own life experience and I didn't have sex in my first year of college. It just never crossed my mind. Like, why would I put that in and manufacture this like consummation when to me, like that was an episode I wasn't able to move on from because I wasn't able to assign meaning to it. And part of that was you know, like I'm, I'm always writing to figure out things that I'm actually trying to figure out. I'm not actually trying to like create other things and like understand those. That just seems like making extra work for myself. But anyway, so at the time I was, I was thinking a lot about, um, why don't they have sex and why, why do other people expect them to have sex? And it started to feel sort of familiar. And I was like, you know, what is this feeling reminding me of? And I thought, oh yeah, you know, it's like, I thought so much about my first year of college and the, those experiences that became part of the idiot. And I, you know, some years in your life just don't enter your personal mythology so much. Like you just don't think of them as much. And the second year I just didn't really think about it, I guess in part because I was like super depressed um, and I just kind of skip it. And yeah, but I, I remembered that feeling of coming back to school at the beginning of my sophomore year and of people asking me, my friends asking me, so what happened on your summer in Hungary? Did anything happen? And I remember having to say, no, nothing happened, even though I felt that like a lot of things had happened, precisely the thing that we were talking about before, like meeting all those different people, like, okay, I didn't have sex with that one guy, but like I had all of these other relationships that didn't involve sex with all of these other people who weren't him. Um, and those are just somehow like completely negated. And I was like, well, what does that tell us about narrative and what constitutes um, a story in the life of a young woman? Does there have to be some kind of like penetration? Um, and the answer is like kind of, yeah, that those are the expectations. So I really wanted to start the book with that, um, with this feeling of defeat that Satan has of having to say nothing happened but secretly or inwardly, she thinks something did happen, but she's not, she's not sure, you know, she doesn't trust her own intuition. She's like, maybe nothing did happen. And how can I make sure that something happens? And that's kind of like a driving force for the book. Um, on page 84 in Either Or, Celine reinterprets a text from Andre Burton as an inability on her part, um, an inability to disguise the people I knew um, and turn them into fictional characters. Uh, this has been the biggest problem I had in writing and thus in my, in my plan of life. Um, I very much identified with this personally. And you do identify these novels as semi-autobiographical, and we're, even in this conversation, we're talking about the tie-ins a lot. But with that in mind, I, and because I personally feel a similar inability when it comes to writing, is it something you struggle or have struggled with as a writer as well, this inability to disguise the people you know into fictional characters? Yeah, yeah, I struggled with it a lot. I think, um, you know, I always wanted to write novels and I didn't really start, I didn't publish my first novel until I was 39. And I, I, I think that a lot of the delay was because I did not know how to handle that. You know, at first I spent a lot of time trying to disguise, um, you know, I, I had the same thought process that I give Sidon in the book. I spent a lot of time thinking, oh, it's not artistic to just write about your real life. You have to, um, you have to abstract away and like um, to the human problem and reassign it to imaginary people and, and manipulate them and, and create, you know, reach new conclusions. And that's what art is. Um, and combined with that feeling, there was a feeling of, um, it's, it's a 
betrayal to, to write about real people, that it's, um, that there's a kind of censorship that comes where you think I can't, I can't tell the truth about the real people I know. I can't expose. I have to protect the people I know. And the combination of those things, plus my, you know, my need, I think like everyone comes to writing for a different reason. And, and for me, the reason was to make sense out of a lot of different contradictory stories that, um, narratives that I heard growing up about my family and about, you know, America and Turkey, which is where my family's from. And there were just so many, you know, there was just so much information and I needed to, to order it and assign some kind of meaning to it. And it was really about understanding what was there and not about creating new things and then playing games with that. Um, so it's been a balancing act. I mean, I, I have written a lot that I have not published because it feels too close to, um, to things that, are, that really happen that I don't feel comfortable writing about. Um, I think with The Idiot and Either Or, one thing that made it possible to write sort of autobiographical or semi-autobiographical novels is that so much time has passed. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, one solution to the problem is to just, like, wait 20 years, but then, you know, you, you run out of life, so. I mean, would you would you pursue fiction that isn't so close to home? Um, you know, I don't have, like, a theoretical reason that I wouldn't, but I, I, I can't completely imagine doing it because there's still so much that I want to work through from my own life and my own experience. I think I would do that. I would, I would sooner move to like some kind of essays or, or nonfiction and write about my experiences that way. But I, then I would write novels that are completely about something else. Um, in either or, Celine struggles with her sexuality. And at this point in classic Celine fashion, um, she does this by over-intellectualizing, as I've stated. Um, there are clearly a lot of pressures here she faces in her sophomore year of college. Everyone around her is sexually exploring, even though she considered intellectual. Um, shock of all shocks. <laughs> um, even her own mother is more encouraging of her than she is of herself in this regard. Um, ultimately, and, and I am sorry if this proves us a bit of a spoiler, um, we try not to have spoilers on Weird Era, but she does come to unlock her sexuality in the in the cliche way that most youth do with the help of alcohol. Um, this is really speaking to both books as a whole and, and without speaking on the obvious effects of alcohol, in what ways is a kind of debasement the key to an elevated experience? It's like, here's this really smart young girl who doesn't know how to free herself sexually um, despite pretty much knowing so much about everything. Um, and the cliche of cliches is she opens herself up to this elevated experience that being sex with alcohol. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering like, what are the advantages of under intellectualizing is not a real term, but do you know what I mean? That's what alcohol permits her to do. To, oh yeah. Alcohol, yeah. Alcohol does let her turn her thinking off and turn her critical faculties off. And I think she does find that um, really helpful for like, having conversations and like surviving parties. Like she, she really doesn't like parties and then she understands that. And she's like, she doesn't really like drinking, you know? And she's like, 
why do we do this thing that makes us feel sort of sick? And then she's like, oh, I get it. Because without doing it, like other human beings are intolerable and this is what you have to do. And even though sometimes people in college drink too much and then they like die, it's like you still have to do it. Um, and I meant that to be kind of, um, I guess I meant that to, to um, invite us to question the role that alcohol does play and why, I don't know, because I really feel that now. I feel that there's certain less parties, but more like, I don't know, certain dinners or functions that I feel like if I didn't have a glass of wine, I'm like, I would not be able to survive this. And then I'm like, why is so much of the social life that we live like constructed in such a way that you can't face it unless you've like impaired your, your thinking and your capacities. I guess I would, um, there is a sense that I think, you know, Yvonne was always telling Sidin like, he, or he, he was kind of like standing for the view of like, if you would just have a drink, your inhibitions would go away and you, this would all be much easier. And there's a sense that that is sort of true. But I, I think that the sex that Sidin, and not to do more spoilers, but I think the sex that Sidin manages to have with the help of alcohol, I wouldn't say that she's really getting in touch with her own sexuality. I would say she's, she's able to act out a certain script and she's able to understand the point of that script. She's able to, like, she's all her life she's seen, like, um, you know, she, she walks down the street and she sees uh, a bunch of couples walking and, and the men are walking and the, and the young women are sort of draped on their chest. And she's like, I know that that's what you're supposed to be doing, but I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what the point is. And with a little bit of alcohol, like she, she understands what the point is and she's able to do it. And there's like, there's a part where she's like, oh my God, I feel like, I feel like I, I just understood a Shakespeare play because I like, I understand what the point of this like hetero, heterosexual, heteronormative like experiences. And alcohol definitely helps her with that. I don't know how to word this that isn't that isn't going to come off judgmental, and and I certainly could be speaking about myself. It's just so interesting to have such an astute mind and consider yourself like such an intellectual person, and then need this like dumb thing, this dumb thing to help you experience things for the sake of your intelligence. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, a big puzzle that Celine is wrestling with is like um, this this feeling that nothing happened. So like, if nothing happened, then how am I going to be a writer? Like, what am I going to write about? What's going to be in my books? And she's reading all of these books by men, and the content of these books is like, um, it's it's basically a lot of sexual unhappiness for women, but but definitely a lot of sex, a lot of sex for the men and kind of like unhappy sex for the women. And she's like, I know I'm missing something. I know I'm doing something wrong. And she has to kind of like turn off her critical faculties and her and her like thinking and or overthinking in order to be able to participate in that. And I guess like insofar as that's like, I guess the way that I think about it now, I mean, that, that actually is kind of the way that it happened for me. But when I think about it now, I mean, I'm, I thought of myself as straight for, for until my late thirties. And now I'm in a lesbian relationship and it's, it's really different. And I, I, I just wonder if what I got in touch with wasn't, isn't like some kind of ideological or cliche version of what real life is or like what, you know, living, live, real living 
I, I mean, I think that there's like a lot, there's like a lot of ideology that, that tells us like, oh, you can't over-intellectualize, don't think too much, just be, just live. And what that ends up meaning is often just comply, you know, just like go along with what you're supposed to do. Just go, especially go along with these heteronormative scripts. Like a big influence on this book was Compulsory Heterosexuality by Adrian Rich. I was thinking about that a lot, about how how much of what I thought of as natural, as this like, you know, sex is natural, there's nothing, you know, how much of that was actually... Um, did not come naturally to me was not something that I especially freely chose, but was actually like a project that I had to put huge amounts of energy into and that the drinking was kind of part of that. So it's like, it's not even, you could look at it as like, Oh, she's thinking all the time and she's uptight. And then she, you know, has a few glasses of wine and she loosens up and she can have sex. Or you could think of it as like, there's this thing that she doesn't really want to do. And she's constantly thinking about it and thinking about what it means and why do I have to do it? And what's its meaning? And why is it that everyone in these books who like engages in this, why is it that everyone, all the women who I know in my life, when they get sexually involved with a man, like their quality of life drops, like, and now I have to do that or else I can't be a writer. Like what's up with that? And then she's able to sort of like turn off that thinking and uncritically go, go into this subjugating relationship and then participate in it herself, which is not necessarily a great thing, you know? Um, in, in one email to Yvonne, Celine says, nothing happens that I don't want to tell you. Why does she need Yvonne as a reader so badly? Oh, yeah. That's a really actually philosophical and deep question. I feel like Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, I feel like they talk about, the existentialists talk about stuff like that, that like a big part of love is like, or what we experience as love or desire is like, you want, you need to be seen by the other person. You need to like understand the other person as a whole. And then you need to think of that person seeing you and only that can make you feel real. Um, I guess that would be the, the one explanation for it. I guess when I wrote that, I was just thinking about the, like um, the empirical phenomenon of like how hard it is when you're in love and you're not with the person and how like everything that happens, I, I do feel like I have to run by that person or I want to know what they would say about it. I want to know what they would think about it. And their opinion sort of becomes more important than my own. Both of these books take their titles from canonic literature, um, a place not historically known in emphasizing and or complicating an immigrant identity. So I was wondering, what does it mean to you to do so with a character like Celine, the daughter of Turkish parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is something I was thinking about a lot when I was writing about how much of either or and how much of my journey in life was about like establishing some kind of legitimacy and some kind of what I thought of as universality and to be like legitimate and to be universal. And this is something that's like a big part of Turkish culture. Like there's a part of near the end of either or where Selin goes to Turkey to Ankara and she sees a museum that she and her mother used to like to go to about the Anatolian civilizations and she sees that it's wanting the museum of the war the museum of the year award from Europe and she's so happy and then she's like wait why am I happy about this like why does this mean something to me but I think that like she doesn't completely she thinks of herself as someone who doesn't really care about other people's opinions and who doesn't care about conventions and yet you know this is something I've been thinking about um, being at Harvard, being a student at Harvard and how many of my friends were immigrants and how their parents were immigrants and how important Harvard was because it was really the only school that people in other countries had heard of in America. It really meant something to to go to Harvard. And um, 
and how how hard Celine and her friends work to legitimize themselves in these like in these Western according to these Western norms. And I think for Celine becoming a writer, she doesn't feel like you know she has lots of she she reads a lot of books and thinks like this is bullshit. I don't understand why you know Don Juan in Hell. Why are the women screaming? Like she's she's looking at everything and it's. It, She's like, this is bullshit. This isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But at no point does she say, oh, therefore I'm not going to read this. I'm going to read something else. I'm going to go read like, you know, radical feminism or, you know, I, I don't think she thinks she can dispense with it. I think that she thinks that being a writer means situating herself in terms of these universal monuments and that that is, it's very much a, a immigrant idea. I do, I mean, to kind of complicate that, I also think that it's an immigrant idea that, um, that some countries have more than others. I, I've been thinking about Turkey and Russia in particular, and the way that, that the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire were both these empires that were kind of like looked down on and denigrated by the West and were viewed as like kind of subhuman by Western Europe, but that also dominated and, um, and oppressed all of these smaller groups. And that there was an idea about joining Western culture that was really important for like Peter the Great and for Atatürk, that um, that I think I internalized and I didn't really question until until recently. I've been thinking about it. Um, when Celine does finally have sex, she has all kinds of sex with all kinds of men. Um, it doesn't take much. Um, I found this particularly interesting when she starts having sex with Muslim men um, who still want to maintain um, a halalness or her purity, um, but not without getting to experience her themselves. It's sort of like. A misogynistic contradiction for such a smart girl why does Celine never intellectualize this that's a really good question I mean she she has that one line where she's thinking about she has this one boyfriend who's like okay you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to like trim this and wash <laughs> that and she's like wait why are these rules more important than not having sex outside of marriage mm-hmm. yeah, she doesn't really pursue it I guess because she's not that interested in religion and she's not, um, she's not, she's, why is she not, does she not question that? I think that's right. That makes sense. I didn't even think of that. She's just not interested. It's not even, um, it's not what, it's not the metric that she's using to, to measure things with. She's really thinking more in terms of like, what would a person in a novel do? And what the person in the novel do, would do is not related to thinking about like, Oh, which of the right? But it is interesting because she certainly, as you've pointed out, like she's also frustrated to having read all these novels where women are subjugated in these classical mm-hmm. ways all the time, especially when it comes to sex. And yet, she like willingly walks into those very experiences and doesn't seem to feel denigrated by them. But when myself as the reader and possibly as a Muslim woman myself, like all of these internal connections, I felt that for her, I was like, "Well, Celine, like." You deserve better. We don't have to do that. Like that was. You don't have to do that, Celine. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And she's somehow again. She's so smart. She knows what she doesn't have to do. Most things in this world, and yet when it comes to that, she 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 doesn't seem to process it that way. Yeah, I think. I think it comes to I don't know. She's like at the end when she reads the portrait of a lady. There's a part where. Isabel, the main character in that book, is talking about she kind of wants to live an aesthetic life, the thing that Celine's trying to do. She wants to have all these adventures. And someone asks her, well, aren't you afraid of suffering? And she says, you know, I think that on the whole, people suffer too easily. And I think that Celine is like, 
she's kind of trying to be like a cowboy about stuff in a certain way. Like she thinks like, of course I'm going to do these things. And of course they're going to suck and I'm going to feel bad. Like, of course I'm going to like have messy longing and, and I'm going to bleed all over the place. And it just all this like unpleasant stuff is going to happen. But that's part of what, that's what I have to do to be a writer. That's what I have to do to live a full life. And, and anyway, like, I think a lot of it is also, I was thinking a lot about, um, a book I was thinking about a lot when I wrote either or was the Kreutzer Sonata by Tolstoy, where he actually talks about a lot of these things about sex and alcohol and about how, how you learn to, um, how you learn to identify those things with the good and you learn to, to become addicted to them. And I think that it's, um, it's a function of how people are, this goes back to the thing about children. I think a lot of the ideology of romance, I think like romance as a, with everything that's built in it with like, you know, you have to have sex and you should do dangerous things and you need to drink and smoking cigarettes is cool. And joining the army is really cool. And eloping with some guy is cool. Like all of the things that seem romantic are things that will prove to you that you're not a child anymore. And that will therefore make you feel free. And it all comes from the kind of unfreedom that we experience as children, which Sinan is really conscious of. She's constantly conscious of like, when I was a kid, I was an accessory. I wasn't a person. My parents were people. I was just like a pain in everyone's neck being dragged around. And like, now is my time to live. And, and, I think that that's kind of how, and the sinister part of that, the way that it seems to me now is that that, I, that romance ideology actually, it seems like it's liberating young people, but it actually leads them right back into those constraints. Like, I think you really see this in, in Tolstoy, in War and Peace, you see that the, the romance for the boys is like fighting Napoleon and they all join the army and, and get killed. And the romance for the girls is like a dashing officer or whatever. And then they, you know, they, Natasha elopes with this like criminal and they, they, they spend themselves. It's something we say in Turkey, like they, they waste themselves. And it's, um, and then the end, they end up, you know, the, the, the boys join the army and they end up bolstering the state and the and the young girls end up getting married and having children and sending their sons to fight in the war. And it, it just perpetuates itself. Um, I wanted to ask, because The Idiot is coming to the film screen, um, it's coming to the screen set to be directed by Sandy Tan. Has, has that process begun? If so, can you tell us a bit about it? And, and I'm wondering if, if either or will see a similar development. Oh yeah, I'm super excited about that. Sandy Tan has um, written the script, and there are like exciting things happening. But I, uh, it's very much her project. Um, I didn't, I haven't read read even read the screenplay yet. She she offered, <laughs> but I I didn't. It's I'm really thinking of it as her thing because I feel like if I want to. I can already tell from how she talks about it that she sees it differently than I do, which is to, which she has to, to to adapt it because a film is different from a movie, and and she has her own vision, um, and I I, I don't want to like try to control it. Um, so I and I um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to see what she does. Uh, I know she said that there are various things in the works, but I, I don't know that there's that much that. Um, we can talk about and um, about either or. I don't know. I don't know if there's any film plans. You're, you're relinquishing 
it sounds like like re- responsibility is in the word, but you you this is really her project, even though it's very much based on hers. Like uh, oftentimes, authors will become a little bit more possessive or or you know want to maintain the art that they created. But you're really more than happy to, to turn this. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Sandy, so that doesn't surprise me. But it sounds like you're really more than happy to just relinquish this onto her as her project. You no, know, I'm, I'm interested in filmmaking and I, I would be interested in, in writing a, a screenplay. I think if I, if I did that, I would probably, it would not have occurred to me to do the idiot. I, I didn't really think of it as being filmable. It wasn't something that I was thinking about as I was writing it. Like, Oh, how would this be a movie? And then Sandy came to me. She wrote to me with, um, she sent me a, a screener of Shirkers of her documentary, which I saw. And I thought the resonances between Shirkers and the idiot were really interesting. And she had made this kind of like whole case of why the idiot is a movie, which I wouldn't have thought of myself, but she clearly thought of it and she had a, a vision. And I guess I thought like, yeah, let's see, let's see what she, she does with it. It's, it's when you say it that way, like I, you're more than happy to relinquish it. It's, it sounds a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> And I could, I could imagine a world where I would want to have more of a role in it. But I guess given how Sandy works and how she was thinking of it, it, it kind of seemed to me like if we were both, if we were both trying to control it, it would, it, it could get messy. And um, yeah, so I guess I, I am happy for it to be her thing. Thank you, Alif. This was so great. Um, listeners, you can pick up uh, both uh, The Idiot and or Either Or at Library St. Henry Books on the Weird Hour shelf. Um, thank you again. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure.